0: I have a lovely, there we go, let there be light, let there be sound, let there be action. I'm Bud Brainerd. I'm one of the pastors here at Lake Forest. Glad to have you here. Happy Mother's Day, let me say that too. I don't want you to go home and say, that one pastor didn't say Happy Mother's Day. Yeah, Happy Mother's Day, glad you guys are here. Lake Forest is a place where it doesn't matter where you are in your walk with Christ, whether you are uh, curious about Jesus, whether you're cautious about Jesus, or whether you're fully committed to Jesus, there is a place for you here. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow and to change. As long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in with the rest of us. As we meet in the round, we are reminded that our spiritual growth is not just for our benefit. We're all here and have something uh, to receive something. We all have something to give. So as we soak in the love and grace of God, we can pass that on to one more person. So today we are continuing our sermon series entitled Follow Me. Follow Me were the words that Jesus spoke to his very first disciples. They are also the words that he speaks to us. And so we're going to explore today what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. That's the first thing follow me indicates is we have a relationship with Jesus, and it's a relationship that changes us. But it doesn't sometimes change us instantaneously, it changes us over a lifetime. And so uh, today we're going to look at the topic, uh, Jesus welcomed children. Jesus welcomed children. Now I doubt that anybody would disagree with that statement, right? We believe that children are important in the kingdom of God. That's why last week we celebrated baptisms, and so when we baptize an infant, it's our way of witnessing to the fact that children are an important part of the kingdom of God. Now, I, I raised two, two children, um, but I've been around children a lot, uh, maybe more than I would like sometimes, but one of the things I found out about kids is that, is that when they can first speak, they cannot breathe without asking a question, right? Every breath seems to come with a question. Uh, How does that work? What is that? Or the ever-popular, why? Why? Yeah, why, right? Yeah, so you tell them why. and What do they say? Well, why? Why? So kids ask questions. Asking questions is a good thing. It's how we learn. Children will oftentimes ask questions about God, and some of those are really humdingers. That's a technical theological term, humdinger. So, for instance, one one little uh, boy said, Why did God make mosquitoes? All they do is bite you. Why would he do that? That's a good question. Little girl wanted to know, can God read our minds? One child had this question, does God have a big toe? Now, that's a good question, right? That question is so good, if you go to Amazon and type in, does God have a big toe, it will take you directly to a marvelous book that has all kinds of questions that kids ask. And, pretty much gives you the right answer on those. One little boy said, um... If Jesus didn't have a sister, why do I have to have one? (laughs) Yeah. So, So kids ask questions, and for the most part, their questions are innocent. And by that, I mean they are not maneuvering for an advantage over other people. Our text this morning has at its very center a question. But it is not the kind of question that a child would ask. It's more the kind of question that is often asked by adults. And it is still true some questions are insightful, and others are insightful. This happens to be the latter. But before we get to the question, I want to give us a little bit of context. I've always believed that if you understand what's happened before you get to a particular place in a a gospel account, it will help shed light on what you're currently reading. So, uh, the first eight, this is the Cliff Notes, the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus in action. So, Jesus is teaching, he's driving out unclean spirits, He's healing all kinds of diseases. He's forgiving people of their sins. He chooses 12 disciples. He raises the dead. The first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke, it's Jesus in action. He's the guy. And then we come to the beginning of chapter 9, where we find these words. When Jesus had called the 12 together, He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. What a great assignment. It just doesn't get any better than that. Jesus has been carrying the weight of his ministry, and now he is entrusting his ministry to his disciples. The master is delegating his work to those who are his apprentices. Now that's good leadership. That's gotta be really exciting. What a great opportunity. I wonder how they did. Have you ever thought about that? The first time Jesus sends them out, I wonder wonder how they did. Well, the truth is we don't know. We don't know because all Luke tells us in chapter nine, verse 10, when they get back is when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done, period. Now, I don't know about you, but that lack of detail is somewhat unsatisfying. I would really like to know. I want to know if they went out in pairs, if they went out uh, kind of like the lone wolf, everybody went 12 different directions, um, I'm interested to know who did what. Who cast out the most demons? Who healed the most people? Who cured the the most threatening diseases? Who was the best preacher? Who had the most converts? Whose teaching drew the largest crowds? While Luke doesn't provide any details, I know they were keeping score they were keeping score. And here is why. Luke tells us in the first verse for today, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. In order to determine who's gonna be the greatest in their mind, you had to keep score. You had to know who was doing the best, who was doing the most, Let that sink in. Does that really sound like spiritual maturity to you? (laughs) But I bet it sounds familiar. Because human beings are, by nature, competitive. Which of us will be the greatest? Now, I want to be crystal clear, the desire to follow Christ more closely than you are is a good thing. After all, Jesus wants us to learn, to grow, and to change. And this is in large part what happens when we answer the invitation to follow him. But God does not, he is not inviting any of us to think that we are in any way superior to anyone else, Christian or not. Following Jesus is not a contest. It is the desire to be superior, to be the greatest follower of Christ, that will get you into trouble. Just think of how many times Jesus has to address this this subject with his disciples. He had to tell his disciples not to lord it over one another. He told them that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The first disciples who walked and talked and ate with him, those who got his message firsthand from him, struggled with giving up the idea that they should be better than the next person. They did. And I get that. But there's another problem with wanting to be the greatest. How do you define being the greatest to follow Christ? Now, we already decided that they were, when they were out of their mission, they were keeping score. Maybe they assumed. Maybe they assumed that the one with the highest score, the most piety points, the most discipleship medals, the largest and longest chain of those uh, perfect attendance Sunday school pins. Maybe they decided that the one who had the most healings would be the winner. The only problem is, as Jesus is about to demonstrate for them, that they were using the wrong scorecard. Their desire and drive to be the greatest among your brothers and sisters in Christ, to sit in the seat of honor, to stand at Jesus' right or left hand, to be the most favored one or the one who is always right, to lead the most followers, and I'm not talking about Facebook and Instagram. That's often how we think about what it means to be the greatest. It's the reason why John the Baptist's disciples got upset. Remember when John was baptizing, he baptized Jesus and then Jesus is baptizing on the other side of the river and John's disciples go to him and say, something's bad wrong. I mean, we've been doing this a long time and the guy that you baptized just a few days ago, he's baptizing on there and he's got a bigger crowd than we do. We're losing this contest. John, fortunately, knew better. Some would say that you can summarize the entire entirety of church history with a statement that Luke wrote. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. The desire to be a faithful follower of Christ can and should be pure, but it can also be polluted by a misguided definition of success. What does it mean to be the greatest? follower of Jesus. What does success look like there? I, I, I love Davidson College. They're, they're in the A-10. We're still in the A-10 even though we've whipped up on almost everybody in there. One of our arch enemies in the A-10 is the Bonnies, St. Bonaventure. Well there was a professor at St. Bonaventure named Thomas Merton and Thomas Merton wrote about what it means to follow Christ and in one of his writings this is what he says, People may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Is it right for us to work on improving our walk with Christ? Yes, it is. But it is a mistake to compare Your walk with Christ with anyone else's. It's a mistake. Let me show you how that how hard this is to to make work if we try it. Who was a better Christian? Paul or Peter? Who was the better Christian? Billy Graham or Mother Teresa? Who's the better Christian, Gray or Michael? You see, it really gets hard when we stop and think about where that line of thinking ends. We cannot compare one person's walk with another. Did you ever wonder if someone that you know is a better Christian than you? You ever ask yourself that question? Or do you ever take the position when you're looking at someone else and you get this feeling that I'm a better Christian than they are? How does one know? It's a dead-end quest. The quest to be the best in following Jesus is a dead-end and an argument arose among them as to who would be the greatest. Arguments among the faithful are nothing new. It Reminds me of the story of an old Scottish preacher who was shipwrecked on a deserted island. We will call him Wallace. We'll change the name to protect the innocent, And besides, I'm making this up so I can call him whatever I want. So, Wallace is shipwrecked on the island, and one day he's rescued. Another ship comes along, and they row ashore, and Wallace is on the shore, you know, giving it one of these. And they land on the shore, and they see Wallace, and they see three beautifully constructed huts. And so they ask him, Wallace, what are the huts? He said, well, this first hut, he said, that's my home. That's, that's where I live. I cook there. I sleep there. I get out of the elements there. Uh, it's, it's been a great home for me. And the third hut, that's my church. I'm a Presbyterian minister. I go to church every Sunday. I needed a place to worship. So that's my church. He said, that's, that's great. But you, you, you skipped one. What's the hut in the middle? He said, oh, He said, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) Yeah, Christians will argue at the drop of a hat. And sometimes if we can't find somebody else to argue with, we'll argue with ourselves. There are a whole host of issues over which well-intentioned, faithful Christians disagree. Some of the disagreements remain unsettled after nearly 2,000 years. For some people it's the role of women in the church, for others it's whether infants should receive the sacrament of baptism, for others it's how somebody should be baptized or how Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. Christians disagree about social positions to support or oppose. Whether or not any war can be just, the list is absolutely endless. And the list that I just gave you are all examples of disagreements that Jesus did not and has not settled. But the disagreement that the disciples are having at this particular point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus does settle. He answers this one. and Here's how he settled the question of what it takes to be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. That's pretty amazing. Did you catch that first part? That Jesus knew what they were thinking? Jesus knows what you're thinking, all the time, is that okay with you? Well, it really doesn't matter (laughs) Because, because he knows, and what he knew about these first disciples is that they were trying to compete against one another. They were trying to find out who was the best. Who was the greatest? And they were measuring their own spirituality, their own discipleship, their own piety, their own faithfulness, their own Christian performance against that of the others. Who's going to be at the front of the line? Who will be worthy to stand at Jesus' side? And so he shows them. He answers their question. He takes a small child, in this case it's a little boy, and he brings him up and stands him right next to him. Now, the word that's used here for the small child is padeon. It means a small child. This is, not, this is not a high schooler. This is not a middle schooler. This may not even be an elementary age child. This is a small child. It's the same word that all the Gospels uh, use when they describe the situation where Jesus is teaching and, and all these little ankle bite on I mean, children. Um... Are around him and the disciples are like "Ooh, this is bad he, they're going to distract him and so they, they say to Jesus we'll we'll get these we'll get these kids out of here and Jesus said no, no 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 you let the little children come unto me this is a small child it turns out that Jesus is not worried about children Jesus welcomes children but why Why would Jesus welcome this little child who has nothing to contribute? It's because Jesus is the greatest. He is the greatest. He wants this little child at his side, even though the little child may not know who he is, even though the little child hasn't been sent out to heal and to preach, He wants this little child at his side because this little child is created in the image of God. Jesus is the one who is greatest. Sometimes Jesus uses children to teach his disciples that they must become like a little child in order to even see, let alone enter the kingdom of God. But that is not the lesson he's teaching them here. Here Jesus is teaching them that being great means that you love and welcome those who, at first glance, have nothing to add, nothing to contribute to the cause. Being great in God's kingdom has to do with who you embrace. It has to do with who you seat in the seat of honor. It has to do with welcoming and embracing those who the world would overlook. Being great in God's kingdom is not about doing things in order to make your name great. It's about serving the neediest among us. About giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Following Jesus is about making Jesus' name great, because that's all that matters. I used to, I used to, go to nursing homes. I was asked to go to nursing homes and. and and do sermons and visitation and stuff. And I got to the point when I'd go to a nursing home, the first thing that I would say to them when they were gathered is I'd I'd welcome them, how good it is to see them. And if they forgot my name, that's no big deal. The name they need to remember is Jesus. Because it's his name that matters, not mine. Jesus is saying that our serving and solidarity with the smallest and the weakest of those who have little or nothing to contribute or add to the effort, those who simply love and trust Jesus, that's what makes us more like him. And therefore great. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that because the economy of the kingdom of God is the inverse of the economy of the rest of the world. If you were reading the original text, this would would jump out to you as clear as day. The last verse, "For, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. The word for least is micro. And the word for greatest is mega. So if you want to be mega in the kingdom, we need to work on becoming micro. We need to take care of the little ones, of the little things. It is his strength which is made perfect in our weakness. It is when we become the servant of all that we become the greatest. Now, you would think that this lesson with these 12 disciples gathered around Jesus, and Jesus uses a cute little kid to make his point. He's the object lesson. You would think they would get that, right? Right? Got it. Check. Let's move on to the more advanced courses. But at the very end of Luke's gospel, after Jesus has has had the last supper with his disciples, after he's told them that he's going to be arrested and killed and raised again, after all of that, here's what Luke says in chapter 22. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, that's the micro, and the leader as one who serves. Jesus' message, and hopefully my message, is not that being the least means that you do the least. Jesus calls us to give our lives in service to him, and he gave his life in service to save us. But there is never to be any credit, any glory, any honor attributed to what we do as we follow him. It must be his and his alone. We are, at very best, one beggar showing other beggars where to find bread, and this bread is the bread of life. I don't know why they couldn't get it. Oh, yes, I do. (laughs) Because it's hard for me to remember, too. I think maybe it's hard for most of us to remember. But the fact is that Jesus still sends us out into the world to continue doing what he did as he began his ministry. Our calling is to follow Jesus, to love those whom he loved, to feed the hungry, to give a cup of cold water to those who are thirsty, to welcome strangers, and to clothe the naked, and to visit the sick and those in prison. But we don't do any of those things so that we can be the best. Jesus set his disciples free. And this morning, I want you to be free. And the way you become free is that you don't keep score anymore. You don't keep score. You don't worry about someone else doing something that you're not. You don't constantly struggle to be the best or do the most Jesus loves us exactly the way we are we do not have to change in order for him to love us and embrace us his love and embrace is what changes us but Jesus will never ever love you more than he does in this moment And he will never love you less than he does in this moment. The truth is that our greatness in the exact same way as our righteousness comes not from what we do, but from the one who has called us to be humble servants. So my prayer is that among his disciples there is to be no further argument over who is to be the greatest. I close with a a poem that I found by F.B. Meyer. It goes like this. I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves. One above another. And the taller we grow, the easier we can reach them. Now I find that God's gifts are on shelves. One beneath another. And the lower we stoop, the more we get. I'm going to invite us to close in prayer, and as we do that, um, Matt and the worship team will, will play a quiet song over us as we pray. So let me give you some time to talk with God and explore what you think being the greatest in the kingdom looks like for you. Let's pray together.